0: Well, hello and welcome. So I'm talking to, how do you pronounce your, is it Altice?
1: Close, it's Altice. Altice. No one ever gets it right though, so don't don't feel bad about it. Yeah, but I appreciate you asking because sometimes people don't.
0: I don't like screwing up pronunciations. Um, So this is Nathan Altice and you wrote a book called I Am Error. It's for, it's about the Nintendo Entertainment System uh specifically focusing on a lot of the what went into the design the the technology of it a lot goes into a lot of detail but you also talk a lot about the, the cultural background to the design and some things that maybe a lot of people don't know about just Nintendo and their PR image and mm-hmm. um and and how a lot of design and design clichés whatever come from this era and from um, technological limitations. So I just want to start out by reading this passage says, the family computer is a real material thing, part of a complex network of social, ecological, and cultural actors, both human and non-human. Though many appear to strive to be a video game, is never a benign object of entertainment. Games like The Legend of Zelda have a massive influence on popular culture, inspiring new generations of children, artists, and designers alike. But their worlds often reflect subtle, often hidden values about the cultures from which they arise. There is a bed of melancholy underlying Zelda's garden in a drawer, a virtual abundance made to meant to placate a real ecological loss. And we can go into talking about uh, what that's referring to later. But. Okay. Um, so how would you say to someone who doesn't necessarily follow video games or Um, maybe is curious but alienated by a lot of the culture around it how would you say that the Nintendo Entertainment System is relevant to the culture of today Uh,
1: first I would say God bless you for not (laughs) closely following (laughs) video games (laughs) you probably have uh (laughs) Uh, Better mental health than some of us that do. (laughs) Yeah, there's, you realize that there's other things in the world worth spending your time on. Um, To someone that doesn't really follow, I mean, I have to do this a lot, you know, especially, you know, even explaining to my family or friends who, you know, they kind of know what I do, but not exactly. And then most of the time it seems really silly, you know, when you say that you, Study video games, I guess, for lack of a better word, in a kind of academic capacity. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's sort of what my career is based around. I think the most important thing um, and why it interests me is because it's really still with us in a very prominent way. And that's, it's even kind of accelerated, I think, in the past few years with Nintendo is they've always had this kind of tradition of recycling their own history. And especially in the past two, three years with the, the advent of things like Nintendo remix and super Mario maker, they've become a lot more playful with their own history as well. Mm. And kind of acknowledging and embracing certain things about their history. Yeah. And, um, we also have the generation that i guess my generation and slightly younger as well that grew up with the nes as maybe not even their first system but their primary system yeah. the sort of most impactful to them that they are now the people that are um, <laughs> in institutional control or at least getting there so mm. they've kind of matriculated into academia or they're at least trying to do so for those that are successful enough to get a job (laughs) or they, they are, they are now the game designers as well. So we're seeing a lot of the influence of Nintendo and that style of game design, that style, the aesthetics of that particular era of video games are now appearing in um Indie games for sure and mainstream games for certain. And so it's all around us still and in a way that we're still kind of dealing with that legacy and what that means. And you have the range of everything from kind of tongue wagging, uh, (laughs) non-critical nostalgia for that era of video games as something that's been lost to subversion of those tropes. Um,
0: well, how, how would you say that the, what you describe as tongue-wagging nostalgia, um, <laughs> yeah. how would you say that that like manifests itself outside culturally? Cause I certainly see it.
1: Um, do you mean like to a non video game audience or?
0: Yeah. It just manifests itself outside of the realm of video games.
1: I don't know if that sort of awful nostalgia manifests outside of video game culture, because most, you know, most of the people my age that I'm describing the book to that, but they don't keep up with video games at all, Mm -hmm. or older than my generation will still say, Oh, I remember the NES. And oftentimes they'll say that's the last time I played a video game. And they'll just say, Oh, wasn't the Legend of Zelda, awesome! I really liked that game. <laughs> so, um, but so they haven't they... defined their entire life around yeah you know, these characters or commodities.
0: So are they are they curious why you decided to write a book, or are they they interested? Uh, what's the response that you generally get, like from your family or peers or whatever?
1: I th- I think to them that I've just written a history. And so that, and that's the most common thing that I hear. Like, oh, Nathan Altice has written a history of Nintendo, and and that's not totally off base. There is certainly a lot of history there because, by necessity, because it's an old console, and I sort of have to tell some of the story of how it came together. But it's not your typical, you know, chronology of what Nintendo did and. This came after this, and this was came after this, and so on and so forth. So it's not a history of that console or a history of a particular company. So that's the way I think they make the most sense of it, okay. which which totally makes sense to me. I I guess the the tongue wagging that I'm talking about is among, and I've written about this in in other places, like you know on my blog and another article that I think is coming out on Gama Sutra soon, but this kind of what I would encapsulate as quote unquote retro gaming. um, That it's this, again, uh, like a pure definition of nostalgia as I've lost my home and my, and I can never return there. And that this was a kind of era when video games were, were perfect they were unsullied by various (laughs) forces and god i really wish that we could have games like this and um and this goes both ways i mean you also have this kind of genre of retro game reviews or writing Mm -hmm. that is very interested in just being angry or being really comical about (laughs) Oh, look how shitty this particular game was. Oh, the, the, Aha, that's very funny. The
0: biggest example for, um, for me, because I used to follow this stuff a lot, was, um, well, one was Sean Baby. You remember Sean Baby? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's this guy who, um, what does he write for like Playboy or something now? I don't, I don't know, know what
1: he does nowadays, but I, I know I saw him in EGM, I mean, back in the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, he, he had a column in the back and yeah, he had a website very early on.
0: EGM is Electronic Gaming Monthly. That was oh, one yeah, of the, the big uh, video game magazines that. At the time um in the 90s mostly Um, right i think it it finally stopped being a print magazine maybe like five years ago
1: yeah it wasn't too long ago they were still kind of kicking around
0: yeah as as you would expect with most things like most video game print magazines don't exist anymore it's kind of a shock to me that things like game informer still exist um but But yeah, so Sean Baby and this other guy, uh, James Rolfe, aka the Angry Video Game Nerd, who had an entire movie he made uh, that was very popular amongst this crowd. Um, The Angry Video Game Nerd is like the template for a lot of like YouTube video game reviews. And basically his whole identity, this started like mid-2000s, I think mid to late 2000s. Yeah. And um, his identity is, he's like dressed as a nerd, it's like a character, and he's always like drinking beer for some reason. Um, <laughs> yeah, And he just plays like all these old games that are really bad and complains about why they're bad and the design like, you know, and in a, in a comical fashion that involves a lot of references to poop. And Mm -hmm. other things and And inventive swear words. Yeah, yeah, a lot of like this is Dookie stain. Right. Um. This this looks like monkey balls, kind of things like that. Right. Um. And it can be like uh the the genuine the genuinely interesting thing about it is like for anyone who grew up playing those games or or whatever like um. A lot of them just have utterly perplexing design. A lot of the times, because a lot of those games were just rushed out. They were meant to be toys. The, the designers really didn't think about what they were doing or how to make it balanced in the way that like a Nintendo game, uh, first party Nintendo game like right. Mario or Zelda is. Um, there was no
1: testing per se beyond, you know, like within the company or... Maybe somebody's nephew or niece would play the game and they were on incredibly tight deadlines and they, you know, especially in Japan, you had like massive cash ins, like we've got to ride this commodity
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: um, to profits because look, the kids are crazy about any game that comes out for this thing.
0: Yeah. And, and they were expensive.
1: Yeah. I mean, they were basically $60, but that would be in 1980 dollars, so they were quite costly, and you could have a game that, you know, took 30 minutes to finish.
0: Yeah, well, it hasn't really changed in some ways, but in other ways, like, games now are, like, especially AAA games are designed to you know you get the most value for your money but are you really getting (laughs) good value for your money is the question yeah um that i think a lot of people don't necessarily can't necessarily answer um but i i'd say he's the template for a lot of youtubers now especially let's players who are play play games and get really frustrated and yell and scream and um there's just a a very like base kind of um <laughs> satisfaction to watching someone react to something and and be super annoyed at it. It kind of takes maybe it takes away some of that it's fun to watch people fail.
1: Yeah, and I I actually think that that guy is pretty interesting because I've watched a bunch of those videos, you know, because he does play a lot of nintendo games and he seems to be about you know the same age that i am so he probably grew up with the nintendo and i think what a lot of people don't understand the people that emulate his behavior is that he is playing a character so yeah. you, you know your judgment positive or negative like yeah the, the character is pretty stupid but um <laughs> he also does now he's kind of gotten away from that character and he just plays with his buddy and they commentate over games and i find it actually a lot more um entertaining yeah it's not to say it's like great quality commentary but he actually seems like a decent human being you know what i mean <laughs> like yeah he invented this character it likely became bigger than he ever imagined he probably didn't intend to be the prototype for a lot of people that kind of took it at face value. Yeah. And it almost seems like he's, you know, as he's getting older, he's probably distancing himself a little bit from it. Now, of course that might help him make a living now. So he's going to release a video game. He's going to release a movie. Mm -hmm. So, you know, more power to him i guess Uh, but
0: i think the movie came out i think it's yeah yeah
1: and the video game
0: yeah the video game is supposed to be quite bad but i don't know that much about it
1: i love that delicious irony of that (laughs) (laughs) well
0: yeah maybe that's the point i honestly don't know
1: yeah Um, i mean that's one of those things where this kind of knee-jerk criticism comes up against the harsh realities of actually making a
0: video game. Oh, yes. it's Because, you know, it's different.
1: like, yeah, it's you can say, oh, look at all these games were terrible and I know a lot about video games just because I've played them. But then when you actually try to make one and you come up against the realities of how difficult that is, it's often a rude awakening. And we've seen this happen many times with, you know, critics and or personalities that decide oh I know enough now <laughs> by dint of commentary that I can now make video games and they'll be really good and it almost never pans out
0: well that's one thing that I actually wanted to ask about so Nintendo did a lot um, to kind of make the NES into a closed platform mm-hmm. uh, as in one that you couldn't like easily hack or or reassemble or reprogram in the way that like computers of the time like C64's uh, C64 was one of the big uh, consumer computers of the time right. and you could it came packed in with BASIC which is a programming language and you could you know, anyone uh, who was interested, who was a hobbyist could uh, buy like a magazine and, and there would be a program written down there and you could type it into your basic and then compile it and run it and you could run this thing that you made. And so there's a lot of people who are sort of hobbyists distributing their own software. And I think that kind of goes into early days of PC gaming too. But by contrast, Nintendo is this like closed package partly because presumably they wanted to stay in business and there were so many people pirating things out there and the the costs for manufacturing things on such a mass scale were really high. But um, I think one of the unfortunate uh, results of that is that people who grow up with that see this object as like this thing that is outside of them. They don't see themselves necessarily as a creator in the way that somebody... Mm-hmm. Who, you know, got their start playing making Doom mods or whatever, or Half-Life mods. Right. Um, yeah, or, that's a
1: really good point. Yeah. Um and it's it's one of those things where the the cultural story of the, of that um uh I don't know what you would say, like consumer environment is really important to understand because they are very specifically closed as The Nintendo, meaning the American version of the family computer, because Mm -hmm. those restrictions weren't in place in Japan, um, partly because I don't think Nintendo ever... Well, I'm sure they hoped, but I'm not sure that they knew it was going to be a hit. I mean, you never know with with that kind of product. So, so uh,
0: could you could you talk really quickly just what's the difference between the Nintendo Entertainment System, which was released in the U.S., and the Famicom, uh, which was released in Japan, which was the original system? Yeah,
1: the the family computer was uh, Nintendo's first cartridge system. Uh, home console they had made some kind of like uh brick breaker games and racing games that were sort of like pong style self-contained units but this was their first cartridge console and
0: they they were a toy company before that right
1: yeah although they had been making games for several years because they'd been making arcade games oh
0: and the the game and watch games too correct yeah yeah
1: so so the family computer was um their cartridge-based system, which released in 1983. So a full two years and some change before the Nintendo was released. And the family computer is a totally different looking object. Mm -hmm. It's much smaller. It looks like kind of like a a toy robot torso, I think is the way I describe it in the book. It's red and white. Uh, It's not like the kind of dull uh, monochrome style of the US console. It has controllers that are attached to it. It has a little microphone on the second controller. And the cartridges are much smaller because they were supposed to look like cassettes because the Walkman was a huge fad in Japan at the time. And Nintendo kind of want to model the success of their games after Sony's success. So by making them, associating them with cassettes, and even calling them cassettes, as they were known in Japan, game cassettes, game uh, <laughs> game tapes. Um, that size was very specific to the market reality of how they were designing, but it it wasn't an immediate success in Japan. It took some time, partly because they had to do like a major recall because there was a a, a bug in the hardware that they had to fix. Um, and they invested, you know, several million dollars in fixing all the systems. So it was kind of a slow ramp up. They didn't have Super Mario Brothers until 1985. So they were really kind of relying on arcade ports. Donkey Kong, Popeye.
0: Donkey Kong was like their first international hit, right?
1: As far as I know, yeah. Yeah, They they'd made several other arcade games but that was their first kind of incursion to the united states yeah and
0: that was released 1980 right 81 or- I
1: 81 think. okay yeah and that was really used as the spec hardware to create the family computer right and once that became a success they obviously wanted to branch out to the rest of the world so They looked really carefully at the U.S. market and how they could introduce a machine into what was really a total disaster of a video game market at the time. Because for various uh, many complex reasons, there was this huge kind of crash that the economics of the video game industry just totally bottomed out. Basically
0: just uh, oversaturation, right?
1: Partly that, partly there were supply problems because Mm. they were competing with the same parts manufacturers that PCs were, and PCs were exploding at the time. You had kind of a a very strange business culture in video games where basically, you know, the hippies at Atari, uh, they couldn't sustain their strange, you know, California-style management process. It's
0: very proto Contemporary Silicon Valley. Yeah. Honestly, there was that yeah. um, documentary about the game ET, which is definitely worth watching. It's fairly short. Um, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Uh, cool. <laughs> I'm just saying it for anyone who's listening. Oh
1: yeah, I forgot. It's not just us talking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um. But uh, the the guy who designed it was actually one of the most uh, talented designers at Atari. He designed this game called Yars Revenge um, and an Indiana Jones game. game. Yeah, Yeah, Yars Revenge uses this like really, um, uses some kind of, technical glitch. I don't know exactly how you explain it in, in the design of the game. The Atari was like extremely limited hardware um, much, much more so than the NES. So they were very limited on what they could do. And there was a lot of like ingenuity that went into designing a lot of the games that existed on the Atari. Yeah.
1: The force field is the, is the game's code. Yes. Visualized. Yeah. Really cool.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That is a really, um, that's a really interesting uh i don't know idea or metaphor
1: yeah it's really awesome um, uh, so yeah you have the the family computer which is a big success nintendo this has been written about over and over again Um mm-hmm. uh, frank cefaldi who is a video game historian has done a lot of work like uncovering how the nintendo was launched and Um, it's a really interesting story, so I don't want to go into all the details, but they basically had to change it to fit the tastes of the American toy market. So Mm -hmm. they had to put a robot with it. They had to put a gun with it. They had to make it look like a VCR. So, you know, your friends that came over wouldn't mistake it for a video game console. That's
0: that's why the, um, it loads in from the side, like a VCR, as opposed to, on the top like the the famicom does because the side created all kinds of like problems with it reading the cartridge correctly right
1: yeah it's the that spring mechanism that they use is just wears out over time it has all sorts of mechanical problems and they wanted to be able to hide the cartridge inside Mm -hmm. the machine so i guess at your dinner parties you wouldn't get embarrassed about your. (laughs) your console and they renamed it to an entertainment system
0: well they they advertised it as partly being educational too with the the robot
1: right right and they even had you know the educational series like the the donkey kong junior math game and that lasted all of one game
0: essentially (laughs) well it was a way for them to to get in on the market
1: right and it totally worked and super mario brothers really kind of sealed the deal but um the, the important part there is that when it came over to the United States, they also wanted to avoid the problems that Atari had had with quality control because mm-hmm. anybody essentially could make an Atari game. whereas And that was kind of the case in Japan as well, where anybody could make a Famicom game and they could actually do really interesting things with it, like add extra circuitry. Um, They could have the colors of the cartridges be whatever they wanted. The the boxes could be whatever shape that they wanted. So when you look at the diversity of games and packaging on the Famicom side, it's really amazing because you have like really cool pink cartridges and things with LEDs inside of them and these big, big, huge kind of uh, like, like, VHS-looking cases, um, just a wide range. Whereas in the United States, we got everything was manufactured and controlled and approved by Nintendo, and they even created this kind of you know like bogus seal of quality mm. that meant they had tested it. And then Nintendo could also scrub any content that they chose according to a set of guidelines, so they could uh, take out religious imagery, uh, anything that. American parents would potentially find offensive
0: yeah, they could
1: request that that be taken
0: out so the Nintendo's image partly as a a family company or like the Disney of video games or whatever you want to call it a lot of that comes from worries that of uh, American cultural xenophobia against Japan right
1: right yeah and just you know the religious climate is totally different here where in many Japanese games, because they're they're it's of course not a Christian nation. So they find it really interesting to, you know, put God as a character or, yeah. or the devil and you can kill God or Jesus as a character because to them, it's just like the Norse gods to us, it's just mythology. Yeah. And so they're not so sac- sacrosanct about um, doing interesting things with those images. Whereas you translate that to an American audience and you know, they would people would get upset still here <laughs> today it's if true. that kind of thing is in a video game.
0: I um you you mentioned that uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, um who is the designer of Donkey Kong and Mario, etc. Um, right before he designed Mario, he designed a game called Devil World. Yeah. Um, that a lot of people have never heard of because it's never been released in the U.S. Um. Because it's called Devil World, (laughs) yeah.
1: And you have a devil that's uh, presiding over the top of the screen, and he's wearing like cool boots and underwear. And there's a little character that like collects little Bibles and stuff like that. And I mean, it's a it's a really cute game. There's nothing offensive about it, but obviously, that might have stirred some controversy in the United States, so it was just never released. Whereas in Europe, it was. And that's the important thing about the the crash that happened is that if you read video game histories, they make it seem like it it was a worldwide phenomenon, like, Mm. oh, video games were in danger worldwide, and that's not the case at all. It was a distinctly American phenomenon. Games had not arisen to the peak, especially console games in Japan, for them to kind of die out. And their arcade culture was very healthy and continued to rise. And in Europe, it was a completely different landscape. It was exactly the, what you were talking about, the PCs. The
0: C64 and the ZX Spectrum and BPC yeah, Micro and all those computers. Exactly. Home computers.
1: Yeah, you had basically like a punk rock of uh, computer games going on where if you had you know 79 pounds, you could make a game, you could learn to program, you could make a cassette of it, it in plastic bags and sell it at a local store or through the mail with no approval of anyone so you got i mean if you ever look at spectrum games there's some crazy cool stuff in there have that you just, ever
0: seen a game called go to hell yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> so stuff like that i mean you would have never seen on uh, a nintendo console and that's why the nintendo wasn't really a success in europe because you know, kids looked at it and they're like, wait, I can't make my own code. I can't change anything in the game. It's way too expensive. The graphics look like crap compared to my cool new uh, Amiga system. Yeah. They just weren't that interested in it. And it took years. I mean, it didn't come out till 87 in oh, Europe. Yeah, so you have four-year-old technology and the Famicom was already based on a chip that was from the 70s. So it was just, it looked antiquated to them. So the crash didn't happen in Europe either. They had other things going on, but the game...
0: If you ask a lot of, like, game people now, game YouTubers, retro game experts, journalists, whatever, they'll tell you that a lot of those uh, ZX Spectrum C64 games just aren't very good in comparison, or they haven't aged well. Um, So uh wh- why do you think uh cuz i i i believe that a lot of those games are very unsung even if they're not um you know they don't match up well to our current uh idea and standards of design but i think that's a good way of segueing into maybe talking about the thing that maybe that most established those ideas which is mario so what mm-hmm. makes mario so distinctive and, uh, exceptional in that realm.
1: Mario is one of those, um, rare pop culture events where you just have this confluence of the right time, the right place, the right people, the right designer, the right composer, um, the right company. Just everything kind of connects and comes together in, you know, I don't really think there's any such thing as like a perfect, you know, object, entertainment object, but it's pretty close. I mean, it's, it's very important, whether you think it's great or not, or good or not, it's incredibly important to the history of video games. And It's not to say that it was the absolute first of its kind. They obviously drew influence from a lot of different things. But it's one of those games where it has a very distinctly Japanese sensibility in the way that it kind of is a cultural potpourri of just very bizarre elements, you know, from folk tales, from Japanese culture, from grabbing, you know, random elements of manga of, I don't know, an Italian plumber. That's really strange as well. (laughs) From Brooklyn. Right, like top to bottom, it's a very weird cultural artifact. But at the same time, it's designed so well. There was a lot of thought put into it. There was a lot of iteration in the design. It's really what Nintendo kind of has become known for even today. In my opinion they still make games that have an attention to detail that a lot of other companies don't have they don't put things out in a rush they spend the time to get things right they're really interested in the way that things feel mm-hmm. the way that things look um at a, kind of similar to how apple is you know a sort of obsession over t- design for better or worse i think yeah. that that doesn't make it automatically better but they're very meticulous about it and this was one of the first instances of those folks coming together it's got wonderful music in it the art style is really remarkable the level design is really well thought through and they had this huge burden of having to teach people how to play what was essentially a a kind of new genre and they didn't have the benefit of, you know, putting giant arrows or text on the screen. They they had to use the tools at hand in a very constrained design space to teach players and to make this kind of really long-spanning world mm-hmm. because I've probably told this anecdote on an interview before, but... I remember seeing Super Mario Brothers for the first time actually not on a console, but in the arcade because it came out shortly after as an arcade game. It's slightly different. The version, the level designs are slightly slightly harder. Um, but I remember as a very young kid, maybe six years old, standing in an arcade, looking up at this screen and watching this older guy play this game and being completely... Uh, blown away because the screen moved from left to right. <laughs> yeah, the
0: the scrolling was not a thing that was super common for us right. at that time.
1: And the sense of progression that you mm. could that you that something was happening that uh and the power-ups, I remember not completely understanding but I was kind of enthralled that like, wait, sometimes he gets bigger and then he can throw fireballs and um It was truly groundbreaking at the time so um again i don't think it's like i think it's close to perfect you know but i'm i'm a little biased about super mario brothers but i i think it's its influence really can't be contested whether whether you think it's a good or bad game um it serves as kind of a linchpin of design before and after this particular game and to know that the same You know, it was only six or seven people that made it. It wasn't a super long time that they had to make it. And they were making The Legend of Zelda at the same time.
0: Oh, I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah. And they were actually swapping a lot of things in between the two games. Like, you know, the fire bars originally came from Zelda and they moved it over. And you see some design similarities like with the spatial puzzles in Mario, Mm -hmm. you know, where in the final castle you have to uh go in a particular oh, yes. sequence. That's and the same it, as the Lost Woods. In it doesn't Zelda. say
0: anything about it either. Right. Oh, uh, I think that's one difference between older games and and modern games is that um you kind of had to figure things out by trial and error a lot of the time. And Mario isn't as bad at about that as other things. Zelda certainly is, but yes. um But it is interesting how that stuff is conveyed, not through telling you what to do, but kind of letting you explore. I guess there is this term that uh, you use in your book that um, is invoked also by Shigeru Miyamoto uh, called miniature gardens. Um, Yeah. Basically, the idea was to create something that you could, Express and explore in in a in a a way that was um more that allowed for more kind of movement and especially in Mario like the movement is so important. Um, But the other thing that I got from your book was that you said that um, they deliberately designed a lot of the symbols and stuff in Mario to be kind of universal. Like there's some elements of American culture and Chinese culture and stuff in there. Right. Um and I think that uh is interesting cuz it's something that like people intuit already and they don't know but like if you watch like retro YouTubers or whatever now, they'll never talk about that. You know, that isn't something that and I think part of that might have to be with the it might have to do with the kind of environment of mystery around uh the japanese sort of uh culture corporate culture and game development culture where they really don't talk about what stuff went into the games and there was just like always this mystery in the way that it wasn't there in like you know something like doom or mist that's made by american developers um
1: yeah and i think that something I realized when, you know, I was doing research for the book is that a lot of the information that is uh, circulated about the system and about design is really taken from a really narrow amount of sources. Mm-hmm. Um, David Chef's book, a uh, Game over, you would just I would just constantly find things basically just plagiarized from that. and um, or it would come from Wikipedia and, and it's because I think you don't hear a lot of those things is because, you know, they're not w- <laughs> these gaming historians on YouTube. There's some good ones, but most of them are awful. And you can tell that they're just, they go and search for a couple things on Google and then they assemble You know, this script that they read from and and that's fine. I mean, a lot of them are young people and they don't understand what it means to to do research or why that's important. But they're just not invested in doing the work, you know, and there's there's also a huge language barrier, of course.
0: Yeah. I mean, a p- lot of it is, I think, uh, the more research you do, the more outside of the subject you get. And a lot of the youtubers and stuff, they're trying to make entertainment, and they're k- they're kind of going off the idea that that this Nintendo, this consumer identity thing um, is very much part of them. So anything that might sort of implicate that or put it in a in a bad light, I feel like or just puts it in a light where it's like, this is a context that I do not understand culturally. <laughs> um, like it seems to not exist. Like people don't talk about it. And that's one of the strangest things to me about video game culture. People are unwilling to step outside of the game and look at it as a sort of uh, cultural, document they really want to see themselves as being in those worlds and you know being involved and I, I don't know i in a way i think uh nintendo was kind of responsible for creating this feeling because they they um they designed so much towards it and they also um their marketing was so much directed towards it it's directed towards young kids i don't know do you have any uh Uh, Do you have any comments on on that? (laughs)
1: Um, I think part of that is an accident of history because, you know, first, as you said, Nintendo were toy makers. So their audience is children and they understand that. And for decades, they understood how to and why they market to children And so video games, of course, at the time as well, were largely a children's medium. It was just understood that that's what kids play with. They were a different kind of toy. So, of course, the marketing is going to follow. You're going to get the kids to get interested in something, to be uh, obsessed with it, to make characters that kids could identify with that they become mascots for the company so of course nintendo was manipulating that like any company i think would in their situation that they want to sell toys to young people um whether it's whether it was a conscious decision of cultivating a particular kind of consumer culture i'm not really sure i mean we can't really know that I, i think that because this was a system that became important to people as a, as children and things that we experience in more like heightened emotional states tend to be absorbed more into our identity and become a part of who we are from music to movies or whatever, that Nintendo became that for a lot of people. What bothers me is that people can't, dissociate a corporation from their own identity and can't look back critically at uh, what is their own history so you know something I learned while playing a lot of these games you know over the course of writing the book and before that when I was just interested in the Nintendo as a technology is that you know the majority of these things are awful. I mean, they're terrible. They're <laughs> they're they're just not good games. And there is no objective sense in which someone can say, "Oh, games were so much better back then," or they were designed better, or they were more pure. Um, it's just not objectively true. Yeah. Um, uh,
0: the one thing I will say is there's something about the mistakes that I find very interesting. Um, in a way that uh, something that is successfully executed maybe um, doesn't doesn't happen as much. Like there's something about some of the mistakes of old games or just the bizarre things that arose out of them that I find really interesting.
1: What do you um, mean as an example?
0: Um, I'm trying to think of specific examples. Well, I mean, one example I use is a lot of people I mean, this is jumping ahead to a couple console generations, about, you know, ten years or whatever, but um a lot of people will say Playstation One, the early three D games did not age well because the controls were confusing or um the you know, there's a lot of design, you kind of navigated labyrinths, there wasn't a lot of direction. Mm-hmm. Um But I find a lot of those games really interesting because uh, what I find alienating about current games is there's so much detail in the environment that it's kind of hard to know where to go or what to, you know. And sometimes they put an arrow, you know. But, (laughs) like, I, from playing older games, I know that, like, oh, you want to search around the walls to see if there's a secret or something like that. Um, I get so caught on the details Um, that it's hard for me to adjust to that. So I guess there are multiple different ways of looking at that, is is what I'm saying. And um, I think some of the old Nintendo games, um, I would mostly agree with you, but there is this kind of like, uh, I don't know, I I think of like, uh, I tried to play through and beat the first two Ninja Gaiden games for the NES, which I know they were originally an arcade game, Um, Mm -hmm. but they have a reputation for being super hard um and there's this like weird indifference about it i don't know how else to explain it um where you're just like um in in nintendo games it often feels like if you die there's there's some sort of fairness there you understand why exactly um and ninja gaiden isn't the worst example of this by any means but sometimes you'll just die and you'll just bounce around and you'll lose half your health in just the spur of the moment and it's kind of just like deal with it (laughs) and I, i i feel a lot of old games are like that where like you know you you expect your weapon or whatever to work and it doesn't really work well or you have to like do some really obscure series of actions to get to a new place or whatever um and and there is this kind of like um it almost seems as if there's like a hidden logic to it, but there isn't. But if there were, I think that would be really interesting. Yeah. Um, I
1: think um, just to clarify is to me, often the question is not whether something is good or bad in the kind of like a surface review, because to me, a lot of the, you know, quote unquote bad games, which I think, this is kind of what maybe you're alluding to is they're still like really technologically fascinating to me or formally fascinating or structurally fascinating Mm -hmm. um, that it doesn't matter if you know it was quote unquote good or bad design or the game is good or bad or fun to play that it has still something to learn from and something to contribute to our understanding of video games. And um, I write a, a really short section in the chapter where I'm talking about mostly Legend of Zelda. Uh, there's this this disk system game that is really notoriously awful. I think it's called Relics. Mm. Um, it's just, it's execrable. I mean, <laughs> there's no other word. Um, you know, monkey balls, I guess, to use the angry video game nerd term. Like, it's just terrible. It's like an awful thing. It's no good to play. But the more that I started to look at the game, I wanted to understand why it was so bad. And it really was, there was a technological answer about how they were streaming data to the disc and the way that they designed the loading to work. And it was a really kind of a failure of the medium itself, putting the game on the disc and that to me was something that nobody has taken the time to step back and say why is this game bad like what happened what were the circumstances that led to that design decision being made yeah and and part of that answer was i think it was a port from a different system i think it was a, an msx game not originally a famicom game so they had to make particular design concessions and Legend of Zelda is a kind of good uh, foil to that because they thought about the disc in a really smart way and they handled that medium really well and Relics didn't. But I think that a lot of people that look at video games are very quick to dismiss things that this kind of popular opinion will you know, kind of aggregate around something as like, this is really bad.
0: Video game popular consensus. Well, that's the thing that I was going to mention about E.T. before, why there's a documentary about it is that um, this game is renowned for being very bad. It's designed Mm -hmm. by a guy who was a completely capable designer, but they didn't give him any time to make it um and there were some interesting ideas in it but it just didn't work um but it got the reputation for being the worst game of all time and it kind of ruined this guy's <laughs> career and you know quote unquote was supposed to ruin the game industry but you know it was really just an embodiment of the the bad things that you know the the ways that Atari was uh failing um and, yeah, and this is this often is part of the reason scapegoated is what i This is what I was trying to say.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and and that's one of the reasons that I've kind of had over the past year or so a fascination with the Nintendo Wii, because you have this very strange circumstance where what became the most popular and best selling console of that particular generation if you group it in with the 360 and the playstation 3 it sold you know tens of millions of consoles has at the same time uh partly because of that success i think it has become kind of the populist system you know like the the uh system for moms or grandparents or whatever <laughs> or kids um that because it's become this kind of populist icon therefore it's it has no value because it got a bunch of junk games and i think it's not only you know your regular kind of non-critical gaming audiences that have left the wii behind it's academics have as well Hmm. not to say that nobody has given any attention to the wii but I don't think the same kind of critical attention that they have given to other things. And if you actually look at the Wii library, there's some like incredible games in there. And people were really taking some risks with how games were controlled. Yeah. And, but really, what the popular, you know, consensus about the system is that, oh, it's waggle controls and they're just all bad games that had bad graphics and the reality is that there's just as much value in looking at the things that were both successful and unsuccessful on that platform and i think giving more critical attention to that platform because it kind of deserves it you know there's a reason why developers were attracted to it and i mean i really like those underpowered consoles. I think you know, like,
0: that the Wii U is really interesting too. I got a chance to play around with Super Mario Makers, one of my favorite Nintendo games. Yeah. Um, it's kind really of well designed. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's
1: a beautiful thing and it and it's really designed well for the controller that it has and this is what I've told a lot of my, you know, friends that are into video games who would never touch the Wii U console is I was like, well, It's actually a pretty interesting device. And there's a lot about it that I really like. And it's kind of unfortunate that even Nintendo is kind of rushing past it at this point.
0: Mm. Well, what you brought up is really interesting, though, because it says how much uh, popular consensus really defines everything around the cultural landscape of video games. much more so than even in other realms, I feel like, because, um, you know, in like film or music, you'll have all these different subgenres, and you'll have people kind of on the periphery who are looking at things and kind of trying to be more critical and and saying like, um, you know, this thing might have been not well received at the box office, but it's actually really interesting. Um, a lot of academics though, in video games still just talk about, just, um, appeal to these same cliches and they just talk about like the most mainstream things. And so, so much of the history, um, is really ignored. Uh, and there are very few people who, you know, are willing to look at things that, that don't match up with the, uh, the the typical sort of game clichés and there's it's such a small group of people and I don't know do you do you know why that is do you know why this sort of gamer culture has formed uh, which really a lot of it is, is around Nintendo and it's around Zelda Mario Pokemon uh Final Fantasy whatever um when did that form and when did that consensus become such a, a big part of of everything around games
1: I that's a really complex question. I, I'm not I'm not really sure that I can pinpoint a specific historical moment when that happened or exactly why. I mean to speak to the the first part about academics. I mean part of it is I think pragmatic because they want academics want to talk about things that are familiar to people so there is some kind of common ground because you know you may not specifically know about what your audience is so i kind of explained this in the intro of i am error that i spend a lot of time with zelda and mario because of their cultural importance but they also happen to be as i said you know really important from a design standpoint in terms of illustrating what the platform was capable of and designing around constraints so it would feel weird to write a book about the nintendo and not mention those two things um as far as other you know like wider discussions of video games in academia i don't know if it's totally true that there's been kind of a consensus about what are the important works, because, you know, at least for people like me that are getting started or trying to get started in academia, that we actually do spend a lot of time in class on uh, works that are at the periphery Mm -hmm. because students come in, obviously they, they come in having already been steeped in this, larger popular culture of video games and they yeah. don't know a lot of works. so i mean i spend as much time talking about problematic <laughs> <laughs> as i do about um you know super mario brothers because mm-hmm. to me problematic is going to show a lot more about the potential of what games can do now and what my students are capable of designing you know within the constraints of a class because to me they're probably going to identify a lot more with a game that is personal that is made by one person that is made with technology that's uh, attainable to Mm them and they're often you know because now the disclaimer being that I have only taught in an art school, <laughs> so okay. I I have students that are much more receptive to, um, you know, sub mainstream things, you know, they're already yeah. accustomed to looking at challenging art, so it's not going to be uh, so strange for them to look at a game like that. Um, I've heard from other colleagues that this is not always the case okay. in more practically oriented games programs. Mm. So I can only speak, you know, anecdotally about the people that I know and the things that I've read, and um, you know, even books like, um, you know, like *The Art of Failure*, which is an MIT book. You know, the author spends as much time talking about. Big games, as he does about phone games and indie games. Mm. And I think there is really some concerted effort to represent, as best as we can, the full spectrum of video games. And it's becoming increasingly difficult because there's so much to cover. Yeah. And um, I want to spend time on small interesting games but i also you know i find super mario maker like genuinely fascinating and it's interesting to look at both what can small creators make uh what can marginalized populations make within the constraints that they have and then what can huge international uh profit-driven corporations make Mm -hmm. and what are Where are the design similarities and where are the design differences? And it's, it's, it's always a problem. You know what, this has been a problem in the humanities for, you know, time immemorial is what is the canon? How do you teach the canon of important works and how much do you stray From that canon of works. There's only so much time in a semester. There's only so much space in a book. What do you feature? There's always going to be things that are left out. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there's like a really good solution. It's just you need people that are conscious of the broad spectrum of video games to try and, uh, Give voice to things that they think are important, not just what is kind of the company line from Nintendo or Microsoft or Sony.
0: Yeah, I think um, as far as canons go, I think like uh, there are many different canons, and it's obviously like a subjective thing, but you can look at a variety of different works, and certain works will stand out if you're literate enough and you have enough like knowledge of the kind of media and uh, and everything like i think that certain works will stand out ahead of the pack and you have to be tuned to it And a lot of the times people aren't but um i i mean i do think uh, there can be a canon obviously like what you pick is completely dependent on you know what what you're using it for as far yeah. as like academia and games i th- yeah i I see that a lot of that stuff is changing. It's just frustrating to me because um it's still a very small space and i i think it's i think it's growing but um a lot of uh, it feels like a majority of people who still get into games are very much appealing to the old cliches because they seem to have so much cultural power um and i don't know like uh, i i was gonna ask um is that sort of like, uh, so Nintendo is very self mythologizing. Um, (laughs) Shigeru Miyamoto, he's this kind of like, you know, enigma, he doesn't necessarily talk a lot about the creation of his games. You don't necessarily know um, if there's something intended to be expressed beyond like the theme and uh, the general design approach. Um, but do you think that kind of image of Nintendo, or image of Sega, or whatever, and that kind of culture um, where we don't talk about the individual creators so much, or we don't really know about their personalities, kind of contributes to um, this g- idea of gamer culture, where we're, not, we're identifying with companies and we're not identifying with individuals with their own design sen- sensibilities?
1: yeah i'm i mean with nintendo's case it it's important to understand that part of that is just japanese business culture where it's not considered um you don't talk a lot about what goes on in the company you know and you don't foreground the individual above the company either so you know miyamoto who is one of history's most important designers up to this point um we still actually don't really know a lot about him or his his motivations and he's kind of trotted out almost like a mascot like (laughs) mario is yeah and when there is some crack in that edifice like with super mario maker coming out it seemed like nintendo suddenly allowed (laughs) Uh, both Miyamoto and his longtime partner, who was, you know, unacknowledged, uh, Tezuka, who really gets as much credit for the design as as Miyamoto does or should appropriately, they actually brought him out as well, and they got to talk about, you know, look, here's some of the design documents. This is what we were thinking. It was still, you know, corporate controlled, but it was at least some glimpse at the process of what happens at nintendo and i think part of that was iwata's doing because you know he was the the president of nintendo who just recently died uh he was a programmer so he kind of spoke that language and i think he he thought it was important to foreground that i think you know part of video games difference from say music is with music you have just a number of individuals. So you have a band or you have a particular singer or a recording artist that can be identified with the work that they produce. Whereas video games like films, you know, you have to have, at least nowadays, this massive structure driving their production. And you end up doing a disservice to most of the people that do most of the work. Um, You know, in the same way that we don't say, wow, this new Star Wars, look how great the key grip did their job. (laughs) You know, we talk about the actors, we talk about the director, we talk about the writer and usually that's about it. Uh, Star Wars is slightly different. Of course, it's not the best example, but because people get, you know, crazy, Detailed about it, but what do we do with video games? Is well, before it was it you just identified with the company. It was very rare that the creators were acknowledged as even existing. Yeah, that you know people fought to make that happen, like Activision breaking away from Atari in the the nineteen eighties to kind of establish a a more creator driven culture obviously in PC
0: gaming and yeah I felt like you got it in PC gaming because when I grew up like uh, one of the first names that I really understood and knew uh, and like could identify as having a particular personality was John Romero yeah Uh, same here yeah Yeah. who's a designer on Doom and Quake and Wolfenstein
1: right so Carmack and Romero these were names that were very prominent when you were playing doom whereas i'm sure i couldn't have told you who was responsible for any of the nintendo games that i liked you know at the same time whereas you know i'm playing civilization on my pc and i know that it's sid Myers, obviously yeah the creator of that game but you still don't have you know, you have the top level. You have essentially the equivalent of the director of the video game. But who was the person that you know modeled the trees, or who did the character designs, or uh, you know, sometimes you get the soundtrack art, soundtrack artists nowadays. But you know, who made the music, or who made the, who did the foley or sound design work? We still miss a lot of those details, and it really comes down to the people that are interested in that level of detail that that they care about who for instance the cinematographer was or they care about who did the character modeling in a game and it's really kind of a niche audience that's interested in those kind of things and maybe it's structurally impossible i mean when you have 300 people to know to really feature everybody i'm not sure
0: yeah i i mean i think um those contributions are often really widely unrecognized it's true and i i don't know like i, I mean it's uh the the auteur theory sort of goes by the the notion that you can you can recognize um the sensibility of an individual person um in what you in you know what you're experiencing and that is the the most important element and obviously there's been a lot of criticisms of it but i think like it's still hard to separate, and like I think that oftentimes the 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 effort and the technological magic that so many people um, who work in the game industry or work in Hollywood um, have to you know apply um, is really fascinating, and more people should know about it. And a lot of it isn't known about it because it's kind of intending to create this closed object, this kind of grand spectacle where you don't really see all the, the the pieces and parts. And the pieces and parts oftentimes are really the most interesting part cuz like yeah. Transformers is not an interesting movie, but hmm. like a lot of what went into it is fascinating. Um it's the same with, you know, a lot of video games. Um uh, there was a talk at G, uh, GDC, the Game Developers Conference about um that I remember seeing about uh, the game Skyrim open world fantasy RPG where like uh, they were talking about the design of the worlds and how they had all these complex templates that are sort of mixed and matched um, and just the, 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 it's like, it's like city planning or something. It's so complex. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really interesting. Uh, And it, and it's something that I feel like should be understood, but so much of like the game culture, um, Really de-emphasizes having like literacy in those things because they're trying to create something where you ha- can escape into and you you're not supposed to think about it. But I always the interesting most interesting for thing for me is actually thinking about it and thinking about what why and how what you're experiencing is uh, constructed by a set of ideas or values. But I think I wanted to, to seek from that into saying, um, you're talking about uh, Zelda, um, the design of Zelda in this passage um, from your book, and uh, that uh, a lot of it came from Shigeru uh, Miyamoto's uh, exploration of caves around his home when he was a kid. This is like a thing that's often repeated. Um, right? But um, that, uh, and, and we have this conception in the West of Japan being this very naturalistic culture, like they're very connected to nature, which is kind of true in, in its history, but it's not necessarily true in practice because modernization has, uh, and the ecological problems in Japan have sort of torn away a lot of this stuff. So they're appealing to this kind of lost that, that, that isn't really there in the modern era, and I just wanted to read this paragraph. Um, there is a troubling paradox, paradox underlying Miyamoto's and Tezuka's desire to capture the wonder of exploration in caves, the pleasures of gardening, or the m- meditation of a walk within the confines of a video game. On the surface, they are simply aiming to create an enchanting world for their players, one that adheres to its own fantastic verisimilitude, Hyrule and Kanoku Kingdom, Kanoku Kingdom is the Mushroom Kingdom from um, Mario, are meant to live and breathe while the player visits. But there is also an endemic cultural malaise embedded beneath these virtual worlds, one too often forgot when we focus myopically on the graphics on screen or the deftly crafted console resting beside our televisions.
1: Um, yeah, Um. this is one of those moments where I'm really happy that you (laughs) foreground that section because it's really my favorite part of the book and it took a long time to write and kind of get it right and it seems to be something that nobody has really mentioned at all and it was one of those things where I really thought it got above just the kind of uh, technical level and really connected the dots with some I think what are some really important like ecological realities about Japan. And part of that, you know, the whole reason I got into it was I kept seeing this miniature garden trope repeated in interviews. It was one of those things like I was talking about before where people refer to it, but never, I couldn't really find the source of it. It was just kind of this mythological statement, Miyamoto said it, and it really took finding it in the Japanese and understanding what that term meant in the original language, because that word has a particular cultural con- context. Which is mm-hmm. the this word hakoniwa, which is a specific kind of kind of small garden, which is meant to abstract away the um, the landscape that you see around you and contain it in this very kind of controlled manner, and. There's this whole kind of tradition of um, there's no other way to put it than like ecological devastation in Japan, where they have really tried to control the landscape, to contain it, to concrete it over, to modernize it. And again, speaking to the culture of Japanese business, once these um, kind of bureaucratic machineries get going, they never stop. They keep doing these things for the sake of doing them. <laughs> and that's that's the only reason there's no longer any kind of justification. It's like, well, we pour concrete over lakes because that's what we did last year, and they just keep doing it again and again. And I read this book about, you know, this uh, this man who American man who has lived in Japan basically since childhood and has witnessed this taking place. And he says there's a real kind of dissonance between the American stereotypical view and even partly a stereotypical Japanese view of the culture as one with nature. Like they have these beautiful shrines and hills, and that's actually true. That's part of Japanese history and part of Japan's reality now. But he said there's also this kind of insidious, encroaching, ecological um, uh, devastation that's happening and it's being ignored. And to me, it really resonated with the ideas of making these very controlled spaces within video games and using the exact same terminology to describe this important... uh, Garden form in Japanese culture has been translated metaphorically to the video game space. And it becomes a, a an environment that you can completely exert control over when you don't actually have control over your own <laughs> landscape. And there was this really like kind of poignant meditation by someone, uh, a Japanese, writer in the nineties who was really writing kind of a puff piece about Nintendo and how great they were. But there was kind of this subtext where he was saying, Oh, isn't it awful that the children can't, our children can't go outside and experience nature anymore, but, Oh, it's great that Nintendo has provided these new virtual landscapes that can never be exhausted that our children can now play in. And to me, that really hit me as like, wow, that's, that's, that sounds awful. to me." <laughs> yeah. Yeah yeah, that sounds awful. And he tried to put the best spin possible on it. But so I just started kind of connecting the dots of who had talked about this, you know, in the past decades. And and that's the reality of it. And this, you know, tiny little phrase that Miyamoto is celebrated for as a kind of design metaphor is really, I think, uh, endemic of this kind of tragic reality about what's happening in the real world and so that's what i mean by this object is not just benign you know it reflects a particular culture it intervenes with that culture it has real consequences despite just being this you know small consumer object that you put in your home and is supposed to bring delight and joy to your family
0: yeah well that's one of the things that I think is the hardest for a lot of people who, who identify as gamers or people who play games is reading into the environment like some kind of value system which are always built in there. But that's the funny thing to me is that people think that you can build a, a virtual garden and there's no set of values like in there. Because you talk right. about in the book that there's a lot of destruction and you're destroying the environment in Mario and Zelda. Yeah, that's literally been... burning
1: the landscape, you know, yeah. to, to hunt for items. and.
0: That's so common in Japanese games too. Like RPGs, you walk around and you fight like, you know forest creatures or whatever yeah, right you're always taming the environment and sort of taming the landscape and that's always like kind of disturbed me especially because of like the cutesy surface and and in, in a lot of those games like that you crush these little uh mushroom characters uh the the goombas and like I don't know
1: (laughs) this is carried over into western games as well where you know you look at a game like uncharted where you're just like recklessly destroying uh you know archaeological sites murder in that game (laughs) yeah i mean besides the people that you killed like you know these these important archaeological sites that you just rampage through and uh destroy and that's fun right you know that's like environmental interaction that people really like
0: (laughs) that's not the only way to have fun though so it's like obvious that there are other values at play that are going into it right i don't know the other thing that you said about the failure to kind of evolve in japanese culture like you do one thing and then you keep doing it um it, it reminds me of a thing that, um uh, Tim Rogers, who's a game writer. Do you know, do you know Tim Rogers? Have you ever read any of his?
1: Yeah. He's actually one of my favorite writers. I really enjoy his work I yeah. have for many, many years. He, I don't know him personally though. I've not met yeah, him. Yeah.
0: He lives in, he lives in Oakland. Um, now, but he used to live in Japan for like ten years, um, right. and worked in the game industry. Um, and in one of his pieces, said basically like the cultural landscape in Japan is, y- or in, in like the, the, the corporate culture is, you do one thing and you keep doing it over and over and over again if that right. thing is successful. Right. Right. Um, and that explains a lot about why Japanese RPGs as a genre sort of went from something that um, kind of reached uh, a peak of interesting things happen and then just never evolved, and they just keep pumping them out. And it's become such this niche thing that doesn't really make a lot of money outside of the country. And I, I feel like that is a big reason why the Japanese game industry is really in bad shape right now
1: right and now scrambling to kind of adopt western design patterns as a way out of that problem that they have um yeah i mean that sounds to me like that's all related for sure
0: yeah and it seems like uh nintendo maybe opening up their system or opening in a little bit with super mario maker kind of comes in their realization that they have to do that that people are so used to doing that at a consumer level in some way. Like Minecraft is so huge and, um, you know, people who are kids who are getting into games, that's really what they're playing and they're playing it. They're expecting to construct things in this kind of controlled environment Um, and to share things and that, that kind of spectacle of like watching people play stuff on YouTube. Yeah. Um, And it seems like Nintendo is is at least trying to to open up to that, which I think is really interesting. And it's part of the reason why uh, Mario Maker is so accessible. And I really wish that tools that were not locked inside of a console hardware, um, you know, like ROM hacking tools or things that are, you know, game uh level makers and such where you can share them online and there isn't like this kind of closed box um or this closed network where you know i'm sure like all the mario maker levels are going to disappear at some point
1: i know that makes me really sad well hopefully you know emulation folks will step up at that point and find some way to salvage that stuff as they usually do but certainly hard. not it's hard yeah, yeah.
0: cuz of the way it's connected on the network like it's much easier mm. to do ROM hacking and stuff like that um uh you know like i mean it's it's always precarious but like a lot of the old uh doom mods doom levels are still around from like 1993 and 94 yeah. um just well more 94 cuz that was really when it started but like um because the community is so huge and I mean a lot of stuff is lost to, to history but um, th- the fact that it wasn't a closed box from the beginning means that that history is is more preserved
1: yeah you know Nintendo they're definitely getting more permissive with that kind of thing but it's all always in a very controlled sense on their own terms because you know they'll allow you to play within their prescribed toolbox, but they're not going to, for instance, allow you to change the color of a pipe, you Mm -hmm. know? So it's got to be their green pipe or whatever they decide maybe in the future to update, but you don't just get that palette (laughs) to decide, you know, because Nintendo still wants to kind of control exactly what the aesthetic is. So you're not going to get, you know, some garish or wild color schemes within Mario because then that doesn't fit within their particular brand. So there there's leeway, but to a certain point that they can always control.
0: Yeah. So I've read a lot of writing, um, more recently, um, for people who are you know vid- big into video game, video game loyalists or tech people who said like, okay, well, mobile games and things like that are really taking over the video game industry, and they're the future. And there's this kind of despair that like um, kids these days that don't really know what kind of experience they don't really get to experience the kind of things that Mario or Zelda um were in this previous generation that they're only going to play these crappy shallow mobile games Um so do you think that that's do you think that that sort of invoked cliche is really true or do you think that um, <laughs> what do you think Liz <laughs> uh, I, I mean no I don't <laughs> But, well and yeah. i think that like you know a lot of the games that are very very popular there are a lot of crappy crappy uh just one-dimensional games that are very popular but a lot of <laughs> the thing that a lot of people forget is there's a lot of really one-dimensional nintendo games that are maybe bad in a different way but still really bad
1: right i i'll say this i mean in the same way that we are now seeing the legacy of Super Mario Brothers, Zelda, etc., cetera, I'm actually really excited to see the generation that grows up with Minecraft. Because, I mean, Minecraft is a remarkable game. It's really interesting. You can do so many things with it. It's really cool. Uh, I think it's designed really well. It's not that it doesn't have problems, but... I mean, it's again, like Super Mario Brothers, it's one of those linchpin games that has kind of changed uh, the culture of video games. It's changed the history of video games. It's those kind of one in a million phenomenons that happen. And that is really exciting to me. I don't think that, I mean, it's that kind of curmudgeonly, like things weren't as good I hear this, you know, even increasingly from, you know, friends my age. It's like, oh, music is not as good as it was.
0: Oh, that's not true at all. I hate that
1: so much. (laughs) Like, there's so much good music coming out right now.
0: Yeah.
1: um, That I just don't get particularly nostalgic for uh, things from the 90s or 80s. I like those things and enjoy listening to them. But it's like, there's so many good records coming out now that you know, each time has their own interesting things. And I'm, I don't know, maybe it's part of me being a teacher. I just, I really respect the things that young people are into. And Mm. I think that you have to give them more credit than they usually get Yeah. because it's not just like, oh, we already did that in the nineties, like polygon stuff, you know, is coming back and that crap looks awful and why are you reviving that particular era? And it's like, well, that generation is reproducing things that they grew up with, number one, so they're interested in it. And they have a completely different spin on the things that came before because they've lived through the entire cultural context that those games went through from then until now. So their interpretation of polygonal, you know, rudimentary, flat-shaded polygons is going to be totally different than the original PlayStation 1 artist or PC game artist. And that, to me, is really exciting. I don't get bummed out about things like that. I'm interested in the way... I don't want games to be the same forever. I don't have to play the same thing over and over again. Super Mario Brothers isn't going anywhere if I want to go back to it and play it. Much more interested in the things that people are going to make that are influenced by that or that subvert that or that experiment with those forms. Um, so I don't really get bogged down in getting bummed out about things not being the way that they were. <laughs> mm-hmm. doesn't bother me in other words.
0: So, um, I guess I wanted to end on like, uh, like there's a, There's a fairly substantial retro game sort of culture now. Like, there's a lot of games that appeal to a lot of those ideas or imagery that were sort of created a lot of times out of technical, most of the time out of technical limitations Mm -hmm. or the things like that. Um, Do you see that culture sticking around and being popular? Do you see it, like, evolving? Because a lot of the retro video game culture now is specifically appealing to the NES, the Nintendo, like, you hear the same kind of sounds that you would hear on a Nintendo there are similar kinds of styles of graphics or palettes uh color palettes either you know uh, Nintendo or Super Nintendo looking do you think that there's a lot of people will say that there's something inherent inherently good and refined about that age that's always going to be just universally or not universally but it's just always going to stick around
1: um yeah I'm um- I'll argue both sides of this. So okay. I think, uh, on the positive side, you, you know, as a musician that oftentimes the prospect of infinity is overwhelming and can paralyze you when you try to make music. So, you know, if you sit down, uh, in your, digital audio workstation of choice and you have limitless plugins limitless synthesizers limitless drum machines you can end up making nothing so I've always been interested in how constraints shape creativity Um, so like when I'm making a music track I might say I'm only going to use samples from a cassette or I'm only going to use this one particular drum machine. So you impose constraints upon yourself to get you out of that facing down the void of infinity, which mm. is frightening.
0: I do that. I th- yeah, I do that all the time. I right. really don't like fancy plugins unless it's like something I'm very used to, but I've almost never used that stuff.
1: Exactly. Right. So because it can be in a strange way, too many options can be. Paralyzing. So I think that a lot of game designers, especially smaller teams, that they really can't generate the same amount of assets that a huge AAA production could. So part of it is just a kind of economy of scale where pixel art, um, which is really difficult, actually, um, to get right, uh, it's more manageable it's it's something that they can wrap their head around and it may not be specifically that it's a nostalgic impulse but it's something that it's a constraint that they can use to explore creativity and it's
0: it's something that people are familiar with too with like the nintendo being popular
1: yes although that can sometimes be a bad thing as well because Mm -hmm. I've seen many postmortems from games that were kind of self consciously pixel art style and from the popular, from the mainstream game audience was kind of rejected as, oh, it's retro. We're not really interested in it. It looks like an old game. Why not make something that looks new? So you can kind of get into a bind there where you gain a certain audience, but then also turn off another audience. So But I think they
0: have games like Shovel Knight that are like extremely popular.
1: Yeah. Um I haven't played that so I can't really speak to it, but yeah. I, I at least appreciate that the authenticity was really conscious. So they you know they actually got an NES chiptune composer to do the soundtrack.
0: Yeah, yeah I know I know. I know yeah. <laughs>
1: right and they Um, tried to adhere to some of the palette limitations and what would have actually been possible. I mean, they break a lot of rules, but they did a pretty good job. And from what I hear, you know, the game plays really well, you know, like it's it's it might deserve the the credit that it gets. Whatever, you know, magical mysticism that determines whether one retro game is going to be popular versus another. I have no idea. I wish I knew. Those things just kind of happen.
0: You're probably right in saying that most of these, like a lot of the time the reaction is what you said. Like people are like, oh, it's just another retro game. I'm tired of this.
1: Right. You know, look at what happened to The Binding of Isaac, which was originally like a Flash game, which is very specifically an homage to The Legend of Zelda, both visually and design wise. When it was ported, to the vita and in modern consoles they decided to to switch to kind of a super nintendo aesthetic mm. and there was this oh this uproar about it as like why do you want to make it look so much worse when it's you know has good artwork and you want to change it to this pixelated style
0: yeah look think what the artwork happened was particularly good in the original but
1: <laughs> yeah you know that depends on your taste for mcmillan's art style um <laughs> And that kind of flash aesthetic as well. But either way, whether you like it or not, I mean, it's like there was this huge uproar and then ultimately those people shut up and they just ended up buying it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it ultimately didn't matter. And now nobody talks about it. Okay. So that's the positive side. You have the constraints, you have what's possible, um, then you also have the negative to where it's designed just to appeal to a particular audience. It kind of caters um, to nostalgia of a particular kind of gamer and and you see this in things like um, this retro console I don't know if you're familiar with this was a like a indieGoGo project that oh. yeah this this guy that um. He runs Retro Magazine, I think is what it's called, which is like he, because he wanted to go back to the days of print video game magazines, he started Mm -hmm. this one up.
0: It's Um, based in the the UK, right?
1: I don't think so. I think he's actually American.
0: Oh, I'm confusing it with Retro Gamer, which is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Right. Um, no, this is a different venture. This is I think it's called Retro Magazine. And so that was kind of a success. And he also runs that game auction site, Game Gavel. So he decided that he was going to create a new console called the Retro Console. And the story is so kind of ironically weird because if you know anything about the history of the Atari Jaguar, which was, you know, Atari's last console and failed attempt and has become sort of an oddball of video game history. It got sold, you know, the tooling to make the shell for the console got sold to a dental company. (laughs) And so there's these uh, Jaguar-shaped dental appliances that got made in the 90s that (laughs) painted white and applied to the, and, you know, installed on the wall. Well, this guy bought those shells and the tooling from that company and was going to make this retro console that was basically inside the body of the Atari Jaguar. And the whole rhetoric surrounding the Indiegogo campaign and the website was like, return to an era of games when you didn't have to like download software updates and your games didn't have to be patched and they just worked when you put a cartridge in the console. And, and <laughs> when retired. did that happen? This was just, you know, the Indiegogo died a miserable death back in November. So this is, I, I think recent.
0: I saw like YouTube commentary about it. There was a lot of like, people were very suspicious about it. And then he had a video about it that didn't really clear anything up at all.
1: Right. So the idea was like, Hey, we're tired of our games being ephemeral, and you can only download them. And we want real cartridges so we can, you know, put these fetish objects on our shelves. That's
0: expensive.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it totally ignored the economic reality of this stuff, and that's the problem that he ran up against was when he launched this Indiegogo. It was for this like absurd amount of money, like millions of dollars, and I think they got like eighty thousand or something like that. Just it was it was a total failure and part of the problem you know besides all this rhetoric and the ignoring the economic realities of launching a console in 2015 was um, you know also getting developers interested in this and having some incentive for them to make cartridges and um, appealing to this like nostalgic idea of the better days have gone and we can revive them and i think that is part of the problem of the kind of really consciously referential appeal to a particular era of video games that you're fond of so whether that stuff is going to stick around i think of course you know in the same way that there are still fans of silent film and maybe even every once in a while you get a film that references the cinematography or style of that era of film. There's always going to be those folks that it appeals to them. But I think that in the same way, you know, I was talking about what my students are interested in. They don't really like pixel art that much. Mm. They don't, they don't identify with it. It's not what they grew up with. And to them it looks old or antiquated. And I've even had them say, man, I'm really tired of all this stuff that looks like pixel art. So I think it's going to grow through different generations. We're going to move, you know, eventually into kind of a PS2 aesthetic. (laughs) Maybe we'll have a return to like Wii controls, you know, 15 years from now. These things tend to move in generations in the same way that I'm hearing a lot of music that references the 90s now. Mm. Uh, these things tend to move in waves. So I I think that there's always going to be the stalwarts who cling to their childhood. And I think there's going to be the people that progress and move the medium forward and reference different things that were important to them.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me. I really appreciate it. This conversation went a lot more broad than I was expecting, but that's That's probably probably good. 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 Yeah. (laughs) Okay.